Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. No way, Huawei, Google restricting access to the Czech Chinese tech giant from use of its apps. Deutsche Bank stock hitting a record low following a UBS downgrade and more questions about presidential dealings. And winter's coming, but not to China, it seems. Is the Game of Thrones the latest casualty of the US-China trade war? It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move once again. I hope you all had a great weekend. We did, of course, get the final episode of Game of Thrones, as I mentioned there. No spoilers, I promise. What we are getting the latest episode, and of course, is the ongoing trade battles between the United States and China. Plenty of discussion of that once again coming in the show. The question is, how should investors be reacting right now? Well, I can tell you, uh, News Weekly Barron's has an idea. Take a look at this, urging investors to keep calm amid the trade turmoil. I actually think that investors have been pretty resilient so far. I'm not sure why, given the state of negotiations, even Chinese media overnight saying that the U.S. had, quote, extravagant expectations for a trade deal. So did we all, I think. U.S. stock market futures pointing to a lower open. The Nasdaq down some one and a half percent, dragged lower by many of the big semiconductor chip producing firms who are reportedly restricting access now in terms of sales to China's Huawei. Qualcomm down more than four percent pre-market. It also fell 5% last week too. Micron, Broadcom also suffering too. And it's not just US firms, of course, the European chip makers that supply Huawei also in focus. Infineon, as well as ST Microelectronics, all falling in overseas trading too. Weakness in tech helping drag those European shares lower. German, French stocks down, approaching that 2% lower territory. In fact, Chinese stocks also lost ground overnight. The Shanghai Composite now down over six and a half percent so far this month, 11 percent off the recent highs. Now, we've got one breaking news story that we'll go through in more detail. We're getting word that the Sprint T-Mobile deal, remember this $26 billion worth, is going to go through both companies making concessions. But right now, a lot of optimism we are seeing in the stocks pre-market more as I said later on in the show. But for now, for all the trade twists and turns, U.S. stocks didn't fare too badly last week, too. The White House seems to be choosing its battles wisely here. The decision to remove aluminium and steel tariffs on Canada and Mexico and delay auto tariffs on other allies, easing some concerns here. That sector, of course, remaining front and centre today, the technology for good reasons and for bad reasons. And that's where we begin today's drivers. Google banning Huawei from access to some of its apps and updates. It follows orders, of course, from the Trump administration banning U.S. firms from selling their products to Huawei without a license. Samuel Burke joins us now. Samuel, I just need you to give us some context because we are talking about the second largest smartphone producer here in the world when we're talking about Huawei, but they run on Android platform internationally. So what is this going to mean going forward? Dead in the waters. That is how one analyst described the usability of Huawei phones 
outside of China because, of course, more than 80% of phones depend on Android. So any phone maker that gets into this business that isn't ample depends on everything. The entire ecosystem is built on Google's uh, operating uh, device, operating software, as well as their app. So yes, in China, they don't use Google apps. So that's an easy way that Huawei will be able to get around this. But in literally every single country outside of China, Huawei phones are really going to be useless and anybody, including Google, that tries to tell you, well, there will be workarounds and we'll keep certain things updated. At the end of the day, if your phone cannot be regularly updated and use the regular apps that so many companies depend on, whether it's Uber, Airbnb for maps, your phone is rendered useless, as this analyst said. So for a company like Huawei that's spending $11 billion on parts and software in the United States, this makes it incredibly difficult to move forward, incredibly difficult for consumers and U.S. businesses like Qualcomm that depend so much on the revenue you get from Huawei. It's no surprise that they're down 4% this morning in pre-market. Yeah, everybody recognizing what the spillovers here and the fallout's going to be. Very quickly then, two questions. Do they have their own viable alternative in terms of platform that they could go, look, we've been working on this, we can substitute it in. And given that Huawei was a a lower cost producer smartphone, does this mean higher prices for consumers out there too? This for sure will mean higher prices for consumers because there will be less competition. And at the end of the day, I'm sure Huawei has something up their sleeves. Likely that will work for China but unlikely that that will be a quick alternative for the rest of the world. What about 5G? Listen, it's two different stories here with the same route. At the end of the day, we've tried to keep 5G separate from the smartphones because they're two totally different realms that Huawei moves in. But at the end of the day, if you have Trump pushing you on both sides, it just makes it that much more difficult. It really makes the waters very contaminated for Huawei because the brand is so much weaker. Anytime you put pressure on the smartphone part, it just makes it harder for countries here in Europe to say we want to move forward. If the consumer and businesses and politicians keep on having this view of Huawei that is moving in a negative direction. Wow. Samuel Burke, full of the analogies today, dead in the water and contaminated waters. Samuel Burke, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver, OPEC, saying that it's in no rush. Speaking in Jeddah ahead of the June OPEC meeting, the Saudi oil minister hinted that output cuts will be carried over into the second half of 2019. John Defterius joins me now. Great to have you with us, John. The oil minister of Saudi Thanks, also Julia. saying that the kingdom isn't fooled, quote, by crude prices. And he believes the market is still fragile here. I mean, prices are up 40% year to date. They've got the presidential, US presidential wild card out there too. Is he right? Well, I think he wants to be overly cautious, Julia. Remember right. this time last year, we had the conversation uh, and Khalid al-Fale and his counterpart from Russia uh, released a lot of oil because of the threat from Donald Trump to take away the waivers from Iran. And that didn't happen. And then they got burned. Uh, so I think what we're seeing here is the art of nuance from Khalid al-Fale, the minister of energy from Saudi Arabia, saying we don't need to act right now because we see rising inventories in the United States, but we're willing to take action if necessary. Now, this is a tough game he's playing because Donald Trump is keeping the pressure on both Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, saying they were already releasing the crude just about four weeks ago. And absolutely, that was not the case. So what does Saudi Arabia do? 
They go to the basics. They go to the meeting saying, we're just making a business decision right now. We don't need to move on anything at this stage, uh, but we've always proven in the past that we've been able to act. Let's bring those prices back up, though, Julie. And I'm wondering why we're seeing uh, only a slight gain before, earlier in the session, up about a dollar. Then we come back down again. But $72 a barrel and around $62 to $63 a barrel for WTI is not factoring in the risk of the threat that we're seeing here in the Middle East. I think there's a lot of focus on the U.S. and China right now, whether the trade dispute will uh, get uh, solved or not, what impact this will have on demand going forward. But if you look at Iran, the war in Libya and even Venezuela, and the minister was at that meeting in Jeddah complaining about the sanctions from the United States. At one point, the market's going to wake up and say there's overall risk, downward pressure in terms of production coming to the market, and it could push prices even higher going forward. Yeah, it's such a difficult um, analysis, I think, to make here, whether it's the supply side and the issues that we've got here, or as you said, the bigger demand question over a potential economic slowdown here. Mm. The other wild card, not just in terms of prices, of course, is is what goes on now between the United States and Iran, perhaps more broadly, the implications for the region. I mean, the president tweeted that if Iran wants to fight, that will be the official end of Iran. I mean, it's the Saudis, it's the UAEs who've seen their own oil industries come under recent attack. How do we expect them to respond? What are they thinking in light of the noises that we're getting from the United States here about Iran? We could almost suffer a whiplash, if you will, from the, the mood changes from Donald Trump. Remember, he was having that interview with Fox last Thursday and trying to suggest we don't want war with Iran, but we want them to change. And then you see uh, overnight that tweet uh, that was very bellicose in the language. Uh, here in the region, we've seen both Saudi Arabia and the UAE suggesting they don't want a war right now, but they want to reserve the right to defend themselves if necessary. Even that was the tone coming from Iran again until we saw the the tweet from Donald Trump. Now, of course, Saudi Arabia and the UAE don't want an expansionist Iran into Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, of course, this is their big concern. The relationship they have now with Iraq, they don't want attacks against their Fujairah tankers uh, off the coast of the UAE or the oil installations in Saudi Arabia. But they want pressure on Iran, but they don't want a war. But the problem is that their partner is in Donald Trump is very unpredictable, Julia. And this is very challenging for those like us that sit in the region because you see the tensions extremely high They come back down again and then Donald Trump throws it back up and then you see a response from the Iranian foreign minister uh, Mohammad Javad Zarif suggesting the Iranians have been around for millennia people have tried to challenge us in the past and we remain here don't threaten the Iranians uh, so again we're back up at this nine out of ten threat that we see today Julian it's not not very yeah. comfortable let's put it that way just got to be incredibly cautious. John Defterius, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver. Deutsche Bank shares trading at record lows pre-market, down more than some, th excuse me, 3% after a downgrade uh, by UBS. Reports also in the New York Times this morning that employees flagged concerning transactions involving President Trump and Jared Kushner's business operations. Christina Raleshi joins me now. Christina, we can take our pick here, but let's deal with the reports in the New York Times here. What do we know about this? Well, in essence, what this comes down to is the paper reporting that some employees in the bank's 
Anti-Financial Crimes Unit expressed some concerns. They elevated those concerns to the senior bankers. And then the senior bankers ultimately decided not to refer uh, the issues to the Treasury Department, which is sometimes done when suspicious transactions are flagged. But at the essence, the story seems like a disagreement between some employees and senior managements as to whether and senior management as to whether or not these transactions should have been uh, forwarded to tr- the Treasury Department. Uh, one of the employees is saying that she feels like she was retaliated against and potentially fired because Deutsche Bank uh, didn't like the fact that she was raising concerns. And in response to that, Deutsche Bank came out and said at no time was an investigator prevented from escalating activity identified as potentially suspicious. Furthermore, the suggestion that anyone was uh, was resigned or fired uh, in an effort to quash concerns related to any client is categorically false. It does appear, Julia, that the proper protocols were followed. uh, But again, it's not great for the bank overall because it's had so many other problems uh, with money laundering and, and controlling these kinds of situations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you raise the perfect point. Right now, it's the last thing Deutsche Bank needs amid a downgrade from UBS and a what next question hanging over them with regards to the failed merger with Commerce Bank. Christina Valeshi, thank you so much for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. The former South African president, Jacob Zuma, has appeared in court. A panel of judges will determine whether he should face trial on charges including fraud and racketeering. Zuma denies wrongdoing and is appealing to get the charges dropped. Ukraine's new president, Volodymyr Zelensky, was sworn into office today in Kiev. The former comedian turned politician wasted no time making changes. He dissolved parliament and called for snap elections during his inauguration speech. Zelensky also pushed for peace in the eastern part of the country, calling it his first priority in office. Indian stock markets staged their strongest rally in more than three years after exit polls suggested Narendra Modi will be re-elected. Official election results are not expected until Thursday, but the Prime Minister's ruling coalition appears likely to win a clear majority. Nikhil Kumar joins us now from New Delhi with more. So basically what we're looking at here, Nikhil, and great to have you with us, is private polls, exit polls. I'm a little bit sceptical here because they've been wrong in the past. So um, how much should we trust the readings that we're getting at this stage? That's right, Julia. They have been wrong in the past. In 2004, for example, they predicted that the then BJP-led coalition would come back to power. It was kicked out of office. So we'll have to wait until the 23rd to see if the predictions and the projections uh, following the end of uh, polling on Sunday, if they are going to come true. If they are true, then it looks like Mr Modi is on course to win a second term. And the big question, of course, is what will this term hold? In the last term, in the last campaign, in fact, in 2014, when he first came to power, he came to power promising a lot of economic reform. He promised to generate more jobs for India's young people, many of whom enter the workforce every year and struggle to find employment. He promised to make India an easier place to do business and fix other things in the economic architecture here. Uh, Has he succeeded in doing that? Well, you know, there's a lot of people who question whether he has in fact succeeded, whether he's in fact dealt with some of the big economic problems that exist in this country, uh, both in terms of generating employment, making this a better place for business, fixing, for example, the banking sector, which in India has a lot of bad loans. He's not done enough, economists say, to deal with that. This campaign has, in fact, been less about the economy, more about nationalism. So if he does win, it's not clear where we will go in terms of economic policy. A lot of people are hopeful that maybe if he does come back, 
he will renew uh, a push for more reform. But the campaign itself hasn't been particularly promising on that front. Julia? Yeah, and that's important for the result, too. If we look to his credentials as a promised economic reformist, there are big questions there. Nick Okuma, we wait for that. May 23rd, of course, the official result. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, as Beyond Meat's share price continues to sizzle, I'll be grilling one investor who says the surge has been beyond stupid and caught in the crossfire. Has the US-China trade war claimed Games of the Thrones as its latest victim? We'll tell you why after this. Welcome back to First Move, live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange this Monday morning, where we are expecting a weaker open for U.S. stocks. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing as far as the futures are concerned. Tech stocks, a lot of the pressure focused on this index in particular, the Nasdaq. Chip companies that supply Huawei set to come under some steep pressure once again this week. Also, we're going to be watching the retail sector and talking to this through again. Home Depot, Nordstrom, Target, all reporting earnings. They'll get a chance to discuss how uh, trade tariffs might affect prices. Remember Walmart warning about that from, uh, from last week's earnings report too. If we look at the past month, the S&P retailing index has fallen almost 6%, outpacing losses for the overall market. One thing in this vein to watch as well, over in currency land, the Chinese yuan versus the dollar, it's fallen almost 3% since the latest round of trade tensions, which began, of course, on May the 5th. A lot of discussion being had behind the scenes now about whether China will allow the currency to weaken further beyond that seven, that key line in the sand, seven yuan to the dollar, to counter some of the impact, of course, of rising tariffs, i.e. make your exports cheaper. Let's talk about all these things now. We're joined by Brian Belsky, the chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having Looking us. healthy and shiny on a Monday morning. <laughs> Thank you. What do you make of what we're seeing right now? I guess trade front and foremost. You know what's really interesting? That the conversations we've had with our clients who are portfolio managers, chief investment officers for major fund complexes, they're kind of freezing right now, meaning that they're not really doing anything, meaning selling big positions or, or buying big positions, because things are so fluid now, yes. and overnight. So you do want to be reactive? I think the answer is no. And that's why things have kind of settled. And you would consider all the headlines, you think the markets would be down a lot more. And so we think people are starting to become dare I say, comfortable with this back and forth type of saber rattling. And so I think it remains to be seen whether or not we want to make big decisions here ahead of the big summit coming up. I mean, it's quite fascinating to see the rhetoric that's flying back and forth here and the noises behind the scenes. Even the Chinese overnight saying that, you know, the U.S. was extremely optimistic, exaggeratingly so, um, about getting a deal here. I just worry whether we're being too complacent about the prospect of a, a deal being made here because it doesn't look like the president's willing to have a deal that doesn't have teeth here or bite. Well, I think what we've seen with the market, Julie, is that people have become so reactive. We have to wait until we actually yeah. see if we can reach out and touch it. And then we can believe it because right now we've proven to ourselves that if you get ahead of your skis, quote unquote, a little bit too much, you're going to lose some of your profits. Around. Exactly. Yeah. So what happens if the president says, fine, we're going to enact the further $325 billion worth of tariffs at 25%. Do we reprice lower at that point? Because that argues a further escalation or do we just go, it's more rhetoric? I think it's going to be to the point where we're going to have to see more rhetoric because six months from now, a year from now is when you actually fundamentally start to feel the impact of those tariffs. I think from a sentiment standpoint, Americans feel like 
China has been a, a disservice to them from the consumer standpoint. And remember, 70% of our economy is the consumer. So I think to some degree it could be a positive near term, but longer term, really from a fundamental perspective, you need those tariffs to kick in. And we were discussing on Friday consumer sentiment at a 15-year high right now. What should we be looking at as far as stocks are concerned? Because what we are seeing right now is a repricing of particularly the semiconductors, the chip stocks, those that are most sensitive to the situation. Right, and I think that's good fundamental work that they are the most sensitive. And remember, too, last year they were the most, some of the most, especially in the fourth quarter, the most volatile yes. stocks. So traditionally, two semiconductor stocks, Julia, are more volatile in terms of earnings anyway. So then you dovetail this is happening in China. So that's why we always say stick with the, with the bellwether tech companies because they have the most cash and they're the most stable longer term. Define bellwether then in this market if you're talking about that. Well, stock. no, thank you for, for qualifying <laughs> that. I would say the consumer staple-ish. Like right. I know that there were some headlines overnight about Google, but Google, Apple, Microsoft, right. they touch our everyday life and we, we were, we're using them almost on the minute basis. Okay, perfect. But you're also looking at value stocks here too, particularly versus valuations and how relatively inexpensive right. they look. And I'm being very careful with my language here. No, to be a value investor has been painful. Yeah. And I just go back to... The, the late 90s when I was a strategist and we'd go to fun complexes and value was so uh, out of out of sync and out of vogue, yes. <laughs> and then we had this great move in the early 2000s in value. That's, I think, we're back down to that limit again, finally. And remember, too, that, that financials are the largest portion of the value portion of the market. Right. And financials have dramatically underperformed for 10 years for the most of the part of the 10 years. So we think those stocks in particular from our institutional clients around the world are massively under-owned. And that's where the big opportunity is. At this moment, even with everything else going on, you can be selective and pick up we these do. names. We do. And I think, it's, I think we've entered a market where it's less about value, less about growth, less about hyper-growth. It's just buying good companies. The market is a stock, yeah. uh, uh, the market is a market of stocks and companies. So buy the best companies. And a lot of them right now are paying great dividends in terms of the financials. These big money center banks like Bank of America, JP Morgan, they're under-owned, we believe, by a lot of our clients. What about outside of the stock markets right now? I mean, I could mention, we just had a discussion off camera about the Chinese yuan and the risk perhaps that China continues to devalue its com currency and the, the sort of ripple effects that that, that that takes on because there still is a dollar strength story that, that underlies that shift higher in the currency. Pattern. Right, which then you have to worry about emerging markets and the onset of that. And, and we should never buy companies or countries, Julia, based on currency, you only base, buy them on fundamentals. Right. And so whether or not sales and earnings are starting to improve in China or emerging markets, that's the real question. So we always caution people to buy countries or, or let alone markets based on currency only. Yeah, the other thing that we're seeing if we look at the bond markets is an 80% chance of a rate cut coming from the Federal Reserve this year. So there's still that psychology, whether it's in the stock market or in the bond market, that the Fed is in Got control. Back to right. you. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right, especially considering how the Fed was aggressive last year in raise rates and yeah. then kind of misstep, quote unquote, in the fourth quarter. You know, we've said that this year, 2019, is this generation's 1995. So we saw a Fed misstep in late 94. Greenspan came out and admitted it. So now we talk about the pivot in the Fed yes. becoming more, let's say, dovish. And so I think investors are kind of anticipating that. 
But if we get a positive China accord, the Fed may not have to cut. And I think that might be the biggest surprise of all. And you see a repricing there for the, for the bond market in repricing particular. Repricing stability, and that would be very good. We're still talking about the prospect of a trade <laughs> deal coming. I'm really quite concerned about this, Brian. It's brilliant to have you on the show. Thanks so much for Thank having us. Thank you so much. Brian Balski, the Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. All right. We are counting down to the market open this morning. Let me give you a look at futures once again. Remember, the tech stocks very much front and center. The semiconductors, the chip stocks, most sensitive because of the earnings that they generate out of China in focus. We're also going to be walking you through that Sprint T-Mobile deal. The belief that that's now going to go through with concessions coming from both companies. Brian Stelter will be joining us with all the details on that and plenty more to come, including a short seller, renowned short seller, Andrew Left and his views on Beyond Meat. Is the share price move too extreme? We'll discuss. The Market Open is next. You're watching CNN. Welcome back to First Move. That was the opening bell here at the New York Stock Exchange on this Monday morning, the first session of the week. And we have got a much weaker open as anticipated tech stocks well and truly in focus and under pressure. We've got Google confirming that it is going to be cutting back business with Huawei, as we discussed earlier on in the show. A lot of the major chip makers also reportedly complying with that U.S. order to blacklist Huawei. In the meantime, we've got other things to worry about as well. Fed speak this week to Jay Powell delivering a speech tonight. We've got to Fed minutes out this Wednesday, of course. Fed uh, investors wanting to understand where the Federal Reserve stands with regards to the ongoing trade tensions and the disappointment, of course, over not seeing a shorter term trade deal. As we just discussed with uh, Brian Belsky as well, the bond market overwhelmingly believing a rate cut is likely this year. We shall see whether we get any more clarity from the Fed speak this week. For now, let me walk you through the global movers. Tesla well and truly in focus in this session. Wedbush analyst Dan Ives, a regular on this show, slashing his price target further. He says his major concern now is about Tesla's growth opportunities and hitting profit goals will be a, quote, Kilimanjaro-like uphill climb. He said the company is losing its focus on the moonshot projects. Tesla, of course, trading now at its lowest level in two and a half years. His big concern here is Model 3 demand, not only here in the United States, but translating that in places like China and Europe too, down more than 4% in the session. Lyft also in focus. It's being hit with an investor lawsuit. The suit says the company issued false and misleading statements and overstated its market position before the IPO. No response as yet from Lyft, but remember its shares have now fallen some 30% plus since going public. Ouch. Down some at 2.5% in the session so far. Sprint and T-Mobile gaining strength. Sprint rallying the most on reports that both companies have reached a deal with regulators that will allow the $26 billion merger deal to go through. They're expected to see an announcement from regulators saying that the new merger terms today, but they will not formally approve the deal just yet. More context on that. Sprint right now up some 25%. All right, we're going to talk more about that in just a few moments. But for now, let's look at what's going on for some of these chip makers in particular. Claire Sebastian joins me now. We've been talking throughout the show, Claire, of the pressure for companies that have a huge chunk of their revenues coming from China, the likes of Qualcomm, of course, Broadcom, Intel, all these guys are under pressure. 
Absolutely, Julia. You really get a sense looking at the stock moves today of just how tangled the global supply chains are uh, for smartphones. Let's, let's bring up some of those stocks. Uh, Qualcomm, uh, as you say, is a supplier to uh, Huawei Intel as well. Both of those stocks down sharply. Qualcomm also heavily exposed not just to Huawei, but to China as a whole. About 67% of its revenues last year came from China. Intel uh, as well, about a quarter of its revenues uh, last year from China. So all of this ratcheting up uh, the tensions between the US and China also hitting those stocks today. And then you see some of the competitors, Nokia and Ericsson, both leading providers of networking uh, equipment uh, alongside Huawei uh, in, in the global industry. They are looking at this as a potential to pick up more market share. Uh, so a lot of movement on that today. But, uh, but uh, and as you see, you know, really rippling through uh, global supply chains. I think the question is, will Huawei be able to, uh, to, to, to really come up with its own alternatives, to use its own alternative technology uh, to bypass some of this pressure? Yeah, the losers and also the potential gainers here. The question is, does this all go away if at some point a trade deal is reached? It's uh, really challenging for investors right now. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for uh, walking us through those moves. All right, let's go to the breaking news now. Sprint, T-Mobile's U.S. merger has moved a step closer to approval. The two giants have apparently made concessions to appease regulators. We're joined by Brian Stelter with the details. Talk us through what the potential concessions might be here, Brian. Yeah, these are significant concessions by T-Mobile and Sprint uh, in order to gain FCC approval of the deal. And FCC Chair Ajit Pai is saying he's accepting those and now moving forward. Here's his statement that just came in. He says, in light of the significant commitments made by T-Mobile and Sprint, as well as the facts in the record to date, I believe this transaction is in the public interest, and I intend to recommend to my colleagues that the FCC approve it. Uh, some of the, uh, the concessions include asset sales and some guarantees about service to rural America, Part to the company that don't have reliable wireless service right now. As a result of the FCC chair's decision here, you can see Sprint up more than 25%, T-Mobile up almost 6%, both companies benefiting from this news. This is a $26.5 billion deal that's been long in the works. T-Mobile and Sprint, the number three and four wireless carriers in the U.S., coming together. They believe they need more scale to take on AT&T, which is CNN's parent, and Verizon. Uh, so now the SEC chairman is recommending this move forward. Uh, there will be a vote in the coming weeks. Uh, presumably this will go ahead and clear now that the Republican-controlled FCC is supporting the deal. Yeah, and regulators are clearly very sensitive on what this means for, for consumers, for pricing in particular. The, the prepaid business for me is quite fascinating here because we're talking about pay-as-you-go mobile access for people low-income families, for example, just getting access to um, a contract in this country is incredibly difficult. Talk to me about the decision there potentially too. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. I think a lot of folks, uh, especially in cities, uh, you know, people who are watching this program all around the world, they take for granted wireless service. They expect it to work all the time and they expect their the prices to remain relatively stable because right now uh, the, these companies have been in a price war uh, where they've been competing on price. But there are a significant number of markets and a significant number of people all across the United States and in other countries that are still getting online for the first time, getting wireless subscriptions for the first time. T-Mobile and Sprint have been capped capitalizing on some of that uh, with, as you said, that pay-as-you-go model. Uh, the concern from consumer advocates has been that bringing T-Mobile and Sprint together is going to reduce choice and it's going to cause prices to go up. Clearly, though, the FCC chairman believes he's at a point now where he feels he can greenlight this deal. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. I mean, I was a newcomer to the United States and I can tell you my credit's not bad and I struggled to get a, uh, a contract phone here. So, um, yeah, watch this space. Brian Stelter, thank you for joining us on that story. 
All right, up next, the man who says beyond meat has become beyond stupid. Why a renowned short seller is betting against the recent Wall Street wonder. That's next. You're watching First Move. Welcome back to the show and to look at today's boardroom brief. Ford has just announced that it's cutting its 7,000 white-collar jobs or about 10% of its salaried workforce. The move is part of a cost-cutting effort that the company says will save around $600 million a year. And it could have been worse. Tata Motors posted a drop in profit for the fourth quarter but did better than analysts expected, falling some 48%. Big cost cuts at Jaguar Land Rover brought the UK unit into the green. Tata zeroed in on JLR last quarter after its high costs and weak sales led to the worst profit drop in the company's history. Chinese smartphone maker Xiaomi posted quarterly revenues beating expectations. The company says smartphone revenue jumped more than 16% year over year and global sales reached nearly 28 million units. Shipments of Xiaomi smartphones are said to be ranked fourth in the world in the first quarter. Beyond Meat has built its brand doing what should be impossible, from inventing a meatless meat to a share price that leapt more than 160% on its first day of trading. Is it all too good to be true, though? Well, our next guest thinks so. He says the rise and rise and rise of the share price is, quote, beyond stupid. Joining me is Andrew Leff, founder of Citroen Research and renowned short seller, of course. Andrew, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Why do you think that this rally is beyond stupid? One of the lines that you said is that the stock, the market cap of this stock is actually bigger than the entire industry. That should set alarm bells off. Well, it's bigger than the industry right now. Uh, I think people are excited. Retail investors are very excited without actually understanding the fact that this is not a technology company. It's food, so it's not as scalable as people would like it. And just because you like the product doesn't necessarily mean you should go out and buy the stock at any price. If you look at Robinhood, which is the retail trading platform, it is the number one traded stock on Robinhood right now, Beyond Meats. So it's not to say the product isn't good and not to say that meat alternatives will not have a big future. It's highly competitive. It gets lower multiples. It's not as scalable. And I think uh, it's got a bit over its skis right here. Impossible Foods as well is going to be a big competitor and they could come to market. How important is that also here? I mean, there's going to be many competitors. Uh, what's, the more competitors that come to market, the more it's going to take valuations and compress them and give you an actual gauge. Uh, but it, we don't know. This is not Uber. This is not Lyft. This is not some mega trend that's just started the penetration. Uh, this is something that's still pretty much experimental. It's not that much healthier than regular meat. They're not trying towards the vegetarian market. Beyond Meat is trying to convert meat eaters to eat Beyond. And so it's still you know, out there. The jury's out on it. And if people like the product, that's great. But keep it in perspective. This is not a SaaS company. Have you tried one? I haven't tried one yet. I've read a lot of reviews. I admit, I'm not going to lie. I, was, I, I knew you were going to ask me that. I was actually thinking about getting one last night for that reason. Uh, I hear a lot of reviews. They're mixed. So, you know, I'm not going to say one way or the next. Whether they're good or whether they're bad, it's preferential taste. The question is, does the stock deserve to be at $85, $86, $90? And probably the answer is no. But you still yeah. have to respect the fact that it's a small float. Uh, it's, you know, and... This is a game of supply and demand, the stock market. So if someone was to short it, it is an extremely high borrow rate. I don't recommend it to be a bigger position. But if you own the stock from a lower price, 
thinking uh, this is going to be something you hold for the next five years, I think it'd be a good time to take a profit. But just to be clear, you're short right now and you think this stock's more reasonable, around $65 a share. I think by next earnings, once the, uh, once the stock starts going lower and sobriety sets in, I think we'll see somewhere in the 60s. And that's just what I'm looking at. Yes, I am short the stock. Uh, it is not a large position because of the borrow rate on it yeah. and what you're paying to borrow. As you mentioned as well, though, I mean, I looked at the numbers, 30,000 people who have Robinhood accounts added this because they wanted to get long. The risk here is for small and individual investors, if that price starts coming down, you kind of get a snowball effect because people start panicking. Yeah, I mean, you have that on the long side and you have that on the short side, but you're right. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, it was ridiculous price at 70. It's ridiculous price at 60. It just went public at $21, what, two months ago, a month and a half ago. So, yeah, if the stock price goes lower because of the large retail ownership, it'll probably continue to go lower. Talk to me about Lyft, because this one's been really punishing for people who got involved on IPO day. You say it's an amateur short. Tell me why. Well, first of all, Julia, I'm most amazed. Since when does the stock market care about profits? Since when all of a sudden Uber and Lyft go public <laughs> and everyone says, but are they profitable? I mean, tell me when that bell rang and people start. I mean, as a short seller, I've been waiting for this. Uber and Lyft, in my opinion, are complete megatrends. Ride sharing is just scratched. I think it's right now maybe 1% of all miles driven on the road. I have no doubt it will go to 10%. Uh, the amount of people between the ages of 14 and 17 who will start using this in the next three years are just amazing. Uh, so I just look at the, the rate of adaptation of ride sharing and it cannot be denied. We are the start of a megatrend. Now, if profitability matters, then you don't buy the stock. But if you think you want to own something that in the next 10 years is just going to be completely beyond disruptive, that's what these two stocks are. Isn't there a message in there somewhere, though? Perhaps all the benefits have accrued to private investors that got involved and gave them money in the private markets. And actually, there's little left. As a company like Not Uber, at all. you're still having to buy actually, revenues nine years later. You have to no, ask questions. No. Actually, it's not at all. Uber pricing is completely of the IPO. It came completely down. They expect to get a pop. I mean, Uber investors were buying this four years ago, I think at $28 a share in the private market. So it's not been one of those situations as, oh, let's take the IPO and, and the retail guy doesn't have a chance. The retail guy actually is getting in at a fair price here if you believe the bigger story. And, and that's key. This was supposed to be, I think, $80, $90 a share a few months ago. Yeah, I want to move on now because I'm going to run out of time battling with you over this. Tesla, talk to me about this one because one of the big bulls Amazing. out there on the street, Wedbush, coming out now for a second time and going, look, I'm really worried. You've, uh, you've oh, had yeah. concerns for a long time. Well, you know, it's the key. It's funny. We saw it with, uh, you saw it with an Uber when Travis came out. When you have a company that's telling a big growth story, you need a CEO that people have confidence in. Around two months ago, and I like Tesla, I like the product. Yes, I've driven one, don't own one. Uh, I, Elon Musk lost everyone's, even his supporters, he lost their confidence a few months ago. And you saw it in the stock price, and you saw it in the big shareholders selling at around 260, uh, 270. And I mean, the product's still the product. He has not been able to articulate, is it a supply issue? Is it a demand issue? Now today, Wedbush is already is concerned about his side projects. He's had these side projects for years. Why are they of concern today? Uh, so it didn't matter until it matters. And as soon as you lose confidence in a CEO, it's just so tough to own the stock. How much lower do you think it goes, Andrew? I mean, at these levels, 
I, I liked obviously the upside more than the downside. I know. But I, you know, but at these levels, but if it went another 10, 15, you know, things always overshoot. So they overshoot high, they overshoot low. But you know, it, there's been a lot of bad press, whether it be the fires, uh, the autonomous, the CEO. So let's just suck it all in and still have a high short interest. And let's see how those numbers come out of the next few months of how many cars they're selling. Because at the end of the day, yeah. the most important thing is how many cars are you selling? So show me stock. Netflix very quickly, because since you and I last talked about this, we've had Disney Plus's offerings and we've got a sense of what their pricing is going to be. You always said Netflix is a, a $300 share price stock. It's right now 350 What do you think on this one? I mean, all you hear is streaming wars, streaming wars. And as an <laughs> investor, I want to stay out of a war. Uh, you know, Netflix was ready to write the tombstone for Disney, uh, for Time Warner, for AT&T. I, I just don't know if that can be done. But the consumer still has to vote. Uh, so we'll still see. They're still giving a long leash, Netflix. Uh, let's see if they can raise prices. I, I heard the most ridiculous thing. They said, well, if we can't license friends, we'll just create our own friends. It's not that easy, Netflix. Uh, so yeah. let's see what happens. I just, as an investor, whenever there's a word war involved, I'll sit on the sideline or I'll own Disney, who is a value player in this war. Awesome. And you left. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, the founder, of course, of nice Citroen Research. Here. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, but still ahead from what's moving the markets to what's stirring the emotions of fans, the finale of Game of Thrones. No spoilers. Some are happy, some are disappointed, but in China, some are downright furious. We'll explain why. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The battle for the Iron Throne has come to an end and we can now reveal who is victorious. No spoilers, don't panic. I'm talking HBO. An indescribable level of suspense after eight seasons. The final episode of Game of Thrones has aired here in the United States. But like Daenerys and Arya there, we're keeping quiet. As I keep saying, no spoilers here. Frank Pelosi couldn't quite make it to Westeros for our report. But New York, you know, it's close enough. Frank, millions and millions of people just in the United States have checked in each week in order to watch the latest episode. Are we expecting another record-breaking following last night too? I'd be completely shocked if this wasn't the biggest or I should yeah. say most watched episode in the series history. My guess last night before the episode hit was about 21 million. That would be a new record. The record right now is 18.4, which was set by last year's record. You have to understand this is one of the most anticipated series finales of all time. So I'd be really shocked if we didn't see a ratings record this afternoon. So what happened in China? Because there were reports overnight that the Chinese were all sitting down ready to watch it. And Tencent, of course, who has the rights, decided to tell them it wasn't going to be shown. Wild speculation about why. What do we know? Well, we're still kind of trying to figure out what exactly happened in China. But when you think about it, how terrible must it be for all the fans in China that you're coming into this huge episode, this culmination, this finale of this epic story, and it's just not there? Could you imagine if that happened here? There'd be riots in the streets. People would actually take up swords. It would be insane. 
So what else has HBO got coming up? If Game of Thrones is over, what more have they got? Because as great as this has been, how do they keep enticing us to come back weekend after weekend? Well, HBO's kind of in a transitional right now, as it yeah. would be for anyone after leaving a huge show like this behind. But it has some heavy hitters potentially on its way. It has still the season three of Westworld, which is somewhat popular in 2020. It has this new series called Watchmen, which is based on a graphic novel. It's about a world of superheroes. It's a little bit dark. And then it still has a bunch of other shows as well, such as like Pretty Little, uh, Pretty Little Lies uh, and other things of that nature. Uh, Big Little Lies, excuse me. I always get those two shows mixed up. But they <laughs> all have, they, HBO has a bunch of content still going forward, but they have nothing compared to Game of Thrones, at least right now. Pretty ambiguous. We'll go with that. And I haven't watched any of the last series, so I'm very excited. I've took all the anticipation to come. Frank Pelota, thank you so much for joining us on that story. All right, now this is a great one. This is my favorite one of the day. Making bright futures shine even brighter. When Robert F. Smith rose to address them, new graduates of Morehouse College in the U.S. state of Georgia were probably expecting to receive information, perhaps even some inspiration. What they got, though, was liberation. The billionaire investor freed the entire class from years of debt by wiping out tens of millions of dollars worth of student loans. On behalf of the eight generations of my family who have been in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus. And my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. He urged graduates of the historically black college to pay it forward by going on to help future classes realize their dreams. What a great gesture. All right, that just about wraps it up for the show. Let me give you a look once again at what we're seeing for the markets at this moment. Remember the pressure on the Nasdaq down some one and a half percent, the semiconductors, the chip stocks, those that generate most a significant proportion of their business, their revenues from China, the likes of Qualcomm, of course, and uh, Intel under most pressure. We'll continue to see throughout the session, and I'll be back in a couple of hours' time to uh, walk you through what we're seeing in a couple of hours' time on The Express. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. I'll see you later. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.